0: Tonight I have the pleasure of talking about equanimity. Last week we touched a little bit on equanimity as one of the Brahma Viharas, one of the heavenly states of mind, and talked a little bit about equanimity in relationship to other people. Tonight I want to talk about equanimity from a little different angle, um, more from the wisdom angle understanding equanimity as a doorway to deep peace and liberation. I think there's no doubt that the biggest riddle or puzzle of human existence is this question of happiness. How do we find happiness in this world of constant change? It's really one of the Uh, most misunderstood things in this world. Most of us really have little inkling of what brings true happiness. And yet it's one of our deepest yearnings is to be happy. From the moment that we're born, we're confronted with this world of change and our reactions to it there's a poem that I wanted to read with this talk, which I I couldn't find, called The I Am Alive Thing. And it's a poem uh, a father is writing about his baby, his young baby. And in the first part of the poem, he talks about the baby enjoying life and being so happy, enjoying sheets and breastfeeding and going pee and all the things that babies do. And it's a very cute poem. And um, the baby's having what he calls this I am alive experience, you know, kind of kicking his legs and just, you know, how babies move when they're happy. And so you get this sense of this little baby really enjoying the comforts of life. And then in the middle of the poem, something happens and the baby's not happy you know, something unpleasant we can be sure happens, and the baby turns red, and his legs turn into little sticks, and, and, you know, he gets really upset. From the first moments of our life, we start to learn about this world of both pleasure and pain. Given that we've taken birth in this kind of a world, this world of constant change, we experience both sides of life, the pleasant and the unpleasant. The Buddha described the eight uh, mundane concerns or the eight vicissitudes of life, pleasure and pain, gain and loss, praise and blame, fame, and disrepute. The idea is that there's, we live in this world of duality. We live in this world of pleasure and pain. We live in this world of joy and sorrow. We live in this world where we experience a wide range of experiences. There's a Zen story that gives a little bit of a sense of this. It says, Walter Nowick liked to tell his Zen students the tale of a New Year's Eve party where a knock came to the front door and the attendees opened it to their guest of honor, Fortune, dressed in all of his finery. After all the celebration had died down, however, someone heard a faint scratching sound coming from the back door. They opened it and a scrawny, filthy creature entered the room bringing the festivities to a standstill. Who are you, someone finally asked. Misfortune croaked the creature and then pointed at the guest of honor. Where he goes, I follow. Untrained worldlings, as the Buddha called them, get enchanted by the pleasure side, the fortune, and abhor the unpleasant side, the misfortune, We don't understand that the basic impermanence of all worldly conditions means that we're going to experience both. We can't always experience the pleasant side of these pairs, the eight vicissitudes. So what do we do with this in our lives? We generally respond like the baby did. When it's pleasant, we really wallow in it. We love it. We hang on to it. We're so happy. We think it's going to last forever. And when it changes, as it inevitably does, we suffer. When it's pain, we resist it. We try to make it go away. We kick and scream and fight against it. We're unhappy. We suffer. We get a little more sophisticated as we grow up and we learn to hide some of these extreme reactions, but still in our minds we have our tantrums. Sometimes it's humbling to realize how often the mind functions at the level of a three year old. Mine, no. (laughs) It's deep human conditioning. So over and over we meet this basic human dilemma of trying to find happiness in a changing universe. So here we are on retreat, being with our experience moment after moment, working out this question of suffering and happiness. Working out this question of how we find happiness in an unstable, changing, unreliable world. Here we're trying to see how we can deal with a sense of grace with this world of change, with a sense of balance. The level at which most people solve this happiness question is the level associated with sense pleasures. So we figure that if we can increase the number of pleasant experiences and decrease the number of unpleasant experiences, we'll be happier. That's really the conventional understanding of happiness. There is some happiness here. So this is one of the reasons why we are a little fooled by this, is there is some happiness. We talked about it last week. There's some happiness in um, feeling a warm breeze on the cheek and eating a good meal and uh, drinking a cup of warm tea on a cold day, feeling the sun on our faces when we go out here in the springtime. So there is some happiness here and meditation actually helps us um, be more open to this kind of happiness. Our senses become more refined and subtle as we discussed last week. But this is not going to bring an answer, a deep answer to the question of what brings us happiness there's one uh, major problem with this source of happiness and I think you all know what it is uh, sense pleasures change they're not reliable, we can't count on them The fact that they change means that if we rely on them for our happiness, if we rely on pleasantness and pleasure for happiness, we're going to be restless. We're always going to be searching. We get somewhat addicted to sense pleasures and then we're always looking for our next hit. If we depend on pleasantness, on feeling pleasantness, avoiding unpleasantness for our happiness, if we depend on this as our way to find happiness, we're left very vulnerable in this world of change, in this world of the eight vicissitudes of life. It's like we're on a roller coaster, up and down and up and down. And then we try to control life. We try to control it through grasping and aversion to make it Be bearable to make it happy. And then when we use these control strategies of grasping and aversion, we suffer. Our very efforts to find happiness cause us suffering. A student once asked the Zen teacher Steve Allen, If you were given a wish fulfilling jewel, what would you wish for? He replied to stop wishing. Understanding that a thing was not going to do it—that that's that the fundamental challenge is this endless searching for happiness. In my first three-month course down at the retreat center, I was um, I was 24 years old. And at one point, I did a five-month retreat, and at one point in this retreat, somewhere around the fourth month, I think it was, I went through this period where my mind was just wanting to understand how I was going to find happiness. It was like just this obsessive question, just always there. What is going to make me happy? And I was young, so there was a sense of kind of my life in front of me. And... um, trying to figure out what would do it. There must be something that was going to make me happy. And so in my mind, um, different answers would keep coming up. Well, perhaps I'll get a little hut on a mountain, and uh, I'll live there, and then I'll be happy. And then I thought, well, but I might get lonely. (laughs) And then I thought, well, maybe I'll live in a community of spiritual folks, and You know, that'll make me happy. And then I thought, no, they'll drive me nuts. And then I thought, well, maybe I'll have some kids. That might be the right answer. And then I thought, oh, my God, that much responsibility. I don't think I want that. And this went on for a month. Um, (laughs) And it was just, you know, over, over, what's going to make me happy? And it was actually a really, really difficult time. There was so much fear. Because everything kept coming up empty, it wasn't going to work. And I remember for a month, every morning I would wake up and the first experience I would have was fear. And it was just, you know, on and on. What's going to make me happy? And I was looking for something that was going to kind of do it pretty permanently. That was my hope. <laughs> you know, it was like there was going to be some answer that was going to do it. And then finally, um, I wore myself out, I think. Um, finally, I went into an interview. I was uh, interviewing with Sharon at that time, Sharon Salzberg. So I went into her, and um, I said to her, um, it looks like nothing out there is going to permanently do it. It's going to you know, permanently make me happy. And she's like, yep. And then I said, it looks like then the only alternative is learning how to be okay with each moment and she said yep (laughs) and what was fascinating was in that afternoon the fear left just like that it was just that afternoon when I quit looking um, for happiness where I wasn't going to find it and started to actually direct my attention to finding happiness where it might be possible which is really only in the present moment that's that's, that's what we have to work with. And looking at how we relate to the present moment and our experience is what gives us this chance to develop um, peace or equanimity, which the Buddha called the highest kind of happiness. So the Buddhist answer to this happiness question or riddle uh, goes beyond the basic um, paradigm of trying to arrange conditions to be as we want them to be, thinking that will fulfill us, to looking at how we relate to the world as it is in each moment. Points, po- points towards developing a more reliable kind of happiness. Happiness. The Buddha taught then that the highest kind of of mundane happiness we can experience is the happiness of equanimity, which is a mind that is balanced and at peace and that can accept the changing circumstances of life without reactivity. One definition I found for um, equanimity is poise. I found that to be... um, some of the flavor, there's a sense of gracefulness and ease and balance with that word poise. Another definition I heard is the word perfection, meaning that each moment is accepted as perfect as it is. So a mind that's not contracted in reactivity but rather open and spacious is an equanimous mind. And as we meditate more, we discover that joy and happiness as we conventionally think of them are actually somewhat gross in nature. And we acquire a taste for peace, an equanimous mind, this happiest kind of mind. So why is an equanimous mind the highest kind of worldly happiness? It's primarily so because this equanimous mind is not dependent on conditions for it to be happy. So it's an unlimited kind of happiness. It's an unbound mind, a free mind, free of our addiction to pleasure So the equanimous mind doesn't depend on conditions to be a certain way in order to be happy. And that's very useful in this world of constant change. A man named John Bennett describes it this way. He says, You come to see that suffering is required and you no more want to avoid it than you want to avoid putting your next foot on the ground when you are walking. In the spiritual path, joy and suffering follow one another like two feet, and you come to the point of not minding which foot is on the ground. You realize, on the contrary, that it is extremely uncomfortable hopping all the time on the joy foot. So how do we develop this spacious, unbound mind? The best way that I know is by developing an understanding of our reactivity, getting to know the reactive mind, the non-equanimous mind, really well. Because when we see through our reactivity, when we understand it very deeply, we see that what is left is equanimity. So, we sit and we engage with our conditioning, our reactive minds, the wanting mind, the aversive mind, in order to develop this freedom of equanimity. So, let's look a little bit at our conditioning. The Buddha talked quite in depth on our conditioning that causes us suffering and that can lead to freedom. There's the teachings of the, of the of dependent origination, which some of you know. Twelve links that um, explain the rounds of existence, and there's several of the links in this chain of conditioning that have to do with um, understanding our reactivity and developing equanimity. And these are the moments of sense contact, feeling, tone, and reaction. So the Buddha said that in every moment of sense contact, so in every moment of our experience, there's what is called a feeling tone. And that's this initial uh, impression of pleasantness, unpleasantness, or neutrality. So when a sound is heard or a sight is seen or a sensation is felt, there arises with that experience a first impression that's either pleasant, unpleasant, or neutral. This feeling tone then conditions a reaction. If we're not mindful, when it's pleasant, we will fall into grasping. We will want to keep whatever that experience is. When it's unpleasant, if we're not mindful, we'll fall into aversion. We'll want to push it away. And if it's neutral and we're not mindful, we'll space out. We won't pay attention. If we're mindful, then whether it's pleasant, unpleasant, or neutral, we have the chance to not fall into reactivity, but rather to develop equanimity. So there's two points of freedom where we can consider um, how to break this chain and develop equanimity, non-reactivity. There's the point of the reaction, and there's the point of the feeling tone. So we're going to start by looking at the point of the reaction, which is where most of us come into this chain, consciously come into this chain. So the reaction of either, we're going to be looking at uh, grasping and aversion, or wanting and not wanting. So on the wanting side, there's many variations of how we react, all wanting but just slight uh, flavors, different flavors. There's wanting greed, envy, covetousness, fantasy, obsessions, addictions, attachment, expectations. And on the aversion side, there's also many uh, variations. There's fear, anger, sadness, annoyance, irritation, terror, hate, ill will. So one way we develop equanimity is by turning towards this reactivity with mindfulness. And if the mindfulness is strong enough or the reaction is weak enough, that might be sufficient. That might be enough to return the mind to spaciousness. A few days ago I was um, sitting at home and uh, I noticed I, I, I felt kind of unsettled. And so I stopped and do what I sometimes do in that kind of a situation. I asked myself, why am I not happy? I was just curious. Why am I not happy? And what I realized was um, there's this place in my back. It's, it's, it's um, it, I wouldn't even call it pain. It's something that's a little out. I'm going to chiropractor tomorrow. <laughs> but um, it, was, it was this little out in my back. And um, I was reacting to it. I didn't even know, you know. I didn't even know that that's what's going on. I felt unsettled. And so I just turned, looked at the sensation. The slight aversion and just looking at it. It was like, oh, don't like. Okay. Relax. It was enough. That just that turning the awareness was enough to dissolve the reactivity and I, you know, it was Slight back, little pain. I realized it was okay. I, you know, I'm going to go to the chiropractor, just let it be, right? And there was relaxation and happiness. Now, sometimes it's not quite that easy, right? We all know that. <laughs> so sometimes we have to do a little more investigation. So if there is grasping or attachment, we will look at well, what is the nature of this grasping? How Am I experiencing this in my body, in my heart, in my mind? We get interested in it. Or if it's aversion, fear, again. hmm, What is this experience? Can I be with this experience? What's the nature of this experience? What happens when I'm with it? How does it change? How am I relating to it? So by turning this mindfulness towards the reactivity, we have this chance to develop some understanding leading to peace. And the beautiful thing about life and practice is that every moment we get this opportunity, it's fresh. Every moment there's this possibility of understanding leading to peace. So we have mindfulness as our protection when we enter these encounters with the wanting mind and with the aversive mind. So mindfulness, our awareness, helps us to not get lost in our reactivity and to recognize it for what it is. It's just wanting. It's just fear. When we're caught and not mindful and don't realize it, we get very lost and a whole story that we believe but with mindfulness we can it's like we can surface come up for air and have the chance or the opportunity to return to spaciousness in a sutra one of the sutras in the uh, samyutta nikaya i think um there's a brahmin named ajita who asks buddha a question he says In every direction, the rivers of desire are running. How can we dam them and what will hold them back? What can we use to close the floodgates? And the Buddha's reply, Any river can be stopped with a dam of mindfulness. I call it the flood stopper. And with wisdom, you can close the floodgates. The flood analogy probably feels right to some of us, that sometimes. But the Buddha said that any river, any flood can be dealt with with mindfulness. I'm intrigued by mindfulness and awareness because it feels like we can deepen our understanding of what it is um, we can continue to deepen our understanding of what it is. A number of years ago, I took um, a karate for a while. I studied karate. And in karate, there's your, your basic punch, You just your basic forward punch. And um, what intrigued me was that the people who had gone and studied for many, many years, the black belts, they still studied their basic punch. You know, they still study just like the thing you learned the first day. And um, I feel like mindfulness is our basic punch. It's like we we still can study and understand what it means and deepen our understanding of what it means. Mindfulness is our protection. Mindfulness is our gateway to wisdom. So the appropriate application of this mindfulness is interest and acceptance. So we become interested in the wanting and we can become interested in the aversion. Sometimes we'll find that we become interested because we want them to go away. And so that's something to be aware of because if that's our motivation, we're actually just piling more aversion on top of the wanting and the not wanting. So the interest is um, key, but genuine interest. So we bring mindfulness to it, and the awareness does the healing, stops the flood. An analogy um, that Susan gave in a talk a number of years ago that I heard that I really liked, talking about how the awareness and the mindfulness um, weakens the forces of wanting and of aversion. Imagine you have a cloth, and um, you take a pin and stick it in the cloth, and you keep sticking a pin in the cloth, eventually you will be able to see through that cloth. There will be enough holes that it will become transparent. And I feel like that's what happens with mindfulness and working with um, desire, working with aversion, is that you know each moment of mindfulness is like one of those pinpoints. And as we keep applying mindfulness to these experiences, then we start to see through them. They become transparent and they lose their power. To seduce us to um, to make us uh, lost, and then eventually we start to get much lighter with with these forces when they arise they don't um, we don't take them as seriously, and we can be um, much lighter there's a story. From one of Sharon's books, uh, uh, The Wide World One. I can't remember the title at the moment, but there's a story of the Dalai Lama that I love that I'm going to share with you. We all like pleasant experiences and are fortunate to enjoy them, but if we become lost in attachment, the enjoyment inevitably turns to clinging and then we suffer. At a Buddhist-Christian conference I attended at Gethsemane Monastery in Kentucky, His Holiness the Dalai Lama was speaking about the tour of the monastery he'd been given earlier that day. He began by saying that he was quite impressed with the mon- that the monastery was able to support itself through the manufacture of cheeses and fruitcakes. Then in the midst of this formal presentation with television cameras rolling, the Dalai Lama said, I was presented with a piece of the homemade cheese, which was very good, but really I wanted some cake. He laughed uproariously and repeated, It was so unfortunate, really I was hoping someone would offer me some cake, but no one did. His childlike candor was wonderful, with nothing manipulative about it. Clearly he could be quite happy without a piece of fruit cake, and some part of his state of happiness was the very ability to laugh at his desire for cake as well as being able to speak about it unabashedly before dignitaries of two religions and a television audience. So we can develop this kind of lightness of mind with our, with our own reactivity. It's like, oh, I really wanted some cake. It's okay. Okay. I want to say that equanimity isn't some lofty ideal that we try to plaster on top of our experience. It's not feigned indifference or detachment or I'm above all that. Indifference and detachment can masquerade as equanimity, but we can feel the difference. So it's not about disowning our experience, but about engaging it fully. It's very nitty-gritty. It's, you have to get in there and work it out for yourself. Zen Master Sansanim says, You make problem, you have problem. In trying to understand equanimity, we have to see how we make a problem out of life. So we get curious in how we're relating to our experience. And we start exactly where we are at. Learning equanimity requires that we be very real about what's happening. Last summer, I was uh, traveling For a period of a couple of weeks, and finally, I was coming home on the sixteenth day, and I got to the airport. And through a series of mistakes, I think it was mostly the airplane airline's fault. They probably think it was mostly mine. Um, I was informed that I wasn't going to get on the plane. And I'd been traveling for 16 days, and I knew if I didn't get on this plane, I wasn't getting home that day because it was the last flight out. Um, and it was it, connecting with another flight. I was not equanimous. I was actually quite upset. <laughs> and uh, I had tears rolling down my cheeks, and this little voice in my head said, come on, Rebecca, you've been meditating for 25 years and you're a Dharma teacher. You should be more equanimous than this. (laughs) And then I said, well, I'm not. (laughs) And there was something, I got really interested in just watching myself be non-equanimous. It was like, all right not a quantumist, <laughs> tears going down the cheek, not a quantumist, I really want to go home tonight, I really wanted to sleep in my own bed. And so then I kept watching it, and then at a certain point, it was like, hmm, little a mostly not, but a little a <laughs> And I kept just kind of letting myself feel what I was feeling and be with it. And then finally it was like, hmm, a quantumist enough that I can start thinking about alternative plans. <laughs> And actually, I had a fine evening. I called an old student, and we, I went over, and we had some uh, smoked salmon on crackers in our little backyard garden, and I got a plane the next day and got home. But what was liberating for me about that experience was that I didn't require myself to be a quantumist, that I let myself be just where I was, and through that acceptance of where I was, it worked itself through. And I was fine. So I'm really interested these days in developing equanimity about not being equanimous. If that makes any sense. Developing equanimity about non-equanimity. I mean, think about it. If we prefer equanimity and we insist on equanimity, that's not equanimous. That's not free. So can we be okay with non-equanimity? Can we just hold it? Whatever it is, let it work itself out. Recently, uh, a couple months ago, I went to this orchid show in uh, Northampton, and I bought an orchid, little, just a little orchid. I've always wanted to have an orchid plant, right? So I bought this little orchid plant and brought it home and um we have these two little cats um they're actually they were uh babies of a feral mom down at the retreat center, so we got them really young and they're um still pretty young a little over under two years old and um one of them likes deep plants so uh it wasn't long after we got home that um he discovered the orchid plant, <laughs> and so he uh, ate one of the orchids. There were three open ones and two buds, so he ate one of the orchids. And so I was like, well, what are we going to do with this orchid plant? And I've watched over the last couple months um, how much, in some ways, how much suffering the orchid plant has caused me because I keep trying to figure out how I can keep the cats from getting it. <laughs> and I've done, you know, more or less okay. There's, there's still one orchid flower open. Um but it's an interesting study for me in attachment just to watch how I relate to this orchid. I really love my orchid. <laughs> and um and uh, trying to protect it from the kitty cats. <laughs> we can also, as we're developing um our interest in equanimity and non-equanimity, we can also be playful with our minds. I think sometimes when we meditate, we get a little too serious. We don't have to be too serious. A couple of years ago, I did a, um, a wilderness retreat, something I'd been wanting to do for a while, a solo wilderness retreat. So I went camping on a lake in, um, the Adirondacks, the, some mountains near here. And, uh, I had this time that I could go in June. It was really the only time I could go, and also June's a good month because people, there aren't too many people yet. And uh, so, you know, a couple of days before my retreat, the upcoming weather forecast was a disaster. It was supposed to basically rain for the foreseeable future, and it, um, the temperature was like in the 40s, which for those of you in another country, centigrade, I think that's around like six or seven degrees, um, the daytime high. And so I'm like, what am I going to do? Am I going to go or am I not going to go? And then I decided, you know what? This is going to be a great retreat for developing equanimity. I'm going. And so um, I, I went up there. My partner went with me, bless his heart, to help me set up. And then he, I kicked him out. He uh, went back and um, I got really interested in how I was relating to this weather being so challenging because it was cold and it was wet. And so I would wake up each morning, and I would stick my, my head out the tent. and was like, oh, was still raining. It was still cold. And so what I started to do is every morning I would let myself have a five-minute complaining session, and I would just let my mind complain for five minutes. I'd just be with it. It's like, oh, so, and then after five minutes, I would say, okay, now, how are we going to relate to this day (laughs) Um, so that I'm developing happiness rather than suffering? It was great, and I started to realize, you know, that it was cold, and it didn't rain all day, and the truth of the matter is there was nobody for miles and miles around because nobody would go camping, and it was wonderful. And the mist on the lake was beautiful, and there weren't any bugs. And, you know, it was like I started to let in just the whole story, not just that it was raining. And then when the sun finally came out, it switched right in the middle. It's totally switched, and it was sunny, and then it was so hot. <laughs> and then these People started coming, and the bugs came out like two hours after the weather switched. The bugs were out. <laughs> it was just like you know, it was such a great lesson in life, and that you can't count on circumstances. And it's like, wow, how do I deal with just this moment? And then the last morning, I was I was checking the weather because I had to I had to canoe out, and I, and the weather you know, depending on the wind, I had to, I had to know what the weather's going to be like to make sure I could canoe out by myself and, you know, maybe go a day earlier, day later, depending on the weather. And so the last night, you know, the weather's supposed to be all right. So I kind of unpacked some stuff, took down the tarps and everything. It rained. <laughs> so I woke up in the morning and like everything was wet and it was pouring. It wasn't supposed to rain. So I'm paddling out and it's just pouring and it's thunderstorm starts. So there's, thunder and huge waves and I'm just paddling out I'm like yes this is great you know, it's like, it was just like wow this is how life is you can't count on it you just have to meet the moment okay so on to the second point of freedom feeling tone so the first point of freedom is if we make it to reactivity, engaging reactivity, getting to understand it, make peace with it, see through it. The second point is um, feeling tone. When we feel particularly struck, stuck, this is a good time to work with feeling tone and to try to take a look at the chain of conditioning that causes this stuckness. So, for example, I remember the first time that this really um, made sense for me. It was uh, down at the retreat center again. Um, they were mowing the lawn, which, um, working with sound is one of my uh, main teachers. And so they were mowing the lawn, the lawnmower was going, and um, I didn't like it at all. You know, my mind was like, oh, it's ruining my meditation and, you know, all the things we say when... Um, sounds we don't like uh, intrude, intrude on our meditation intrude in quotes and so I got curious and I was just like oh okay sound unpleasant all this stuff all this huge story and turbulence and everything in my mind it's like wow that's a lot that goes on in the mind just because it's unpleasant. I thought that's a, that's a real waste of time. <laughs> it was like it was like I saw that it was like, wow, that's just suffering, you know. And so then when I just noticed it's unpleasant, I was able to just stop right there. Sound unpleasant. So if we find that we're reacting to something unpleasant, we can just go back and notice that. Or if we notice that we're hanging on to something pleasant, let's say a fantasy keeps coming up in our mind over and over again, we can notice, oh, pleasant. Look, it's just pleasant. And out of that pleasantness comes all this grasping. Just pleasant. A couple of years ago, uh, or a few years ago, when I was um, practicing in Burma, I had, I, I think I've mentioned this before, at Chaswa Monastery in, um, in Upper Burma. I had this little kuti, um, little hut, right on a ridge. And um, I'd like to meditate outside. It was really, really beautiful um, View of the Irrawaddy River and just really nice. So then, on one side, one day, carpentry was happening. So they were doing not just one project, but two projects. And that day, they seemed to have just managed to have some electrical tools on top of the usual just pounding. You know. On the other side, there was this um, oh, place where the water comes in. Uh, I'm not thinking of the word, but the water was pumped up from the river and into this little. Um, place that held it and so it was sounded like a waterfall right the water would so I had the carpentry and the waterfall and I got so interested in what my mind did with these two experiences so the carpentry usually unpleasant waterfall usually pleasant aversion grasping and uh, just watched the mind go back and forth between these experiences and then there would be equanimity oh it's okay It's the same. At times it was the same, just hearing, exploring. So as equanimity develops through our practice and our lives, we start to feel an increased uh, sense of stability and strength. Strong and resilient. We know that we can work with what life offers a kind of unshakable strength. Another, uh, an image that's often used to describe equanimity is that of a mountain. Through rain, snow, sleet, wind, the mountain is just there, strong, stable. I also like the image of a bamboo tree that's very flexible and bends with the wind. To me, the mind, the equanimous mind is also very flexible. Survives big storms by bending with the wind. Mm, There's so much more and so little time. Ultimately, we develop equanimity by understanding the truth of change, understanding deeply the truth of change. If we understand impermanence deeply, we'll start to see the futility of grasping and aversion. There's a well-known Buddhist chant which translated means, All conditioned things are impermanent. Their nature is to arise and pass away. Understanding this brings the greatest kind of happiness, which is peace. This is what we really have to see and understand is this constant change. That's why we emphasize change so much in meditation, that we have to see it over and over again to really understand the futility of grasping and aversion as control strategies in this world. When I was in Burma teaching last year, there was a one of the Sayadaws. We were talking to him about um, Westerners and how Westerners practice, and he said Westerners aren't always willing to really stay with the rising and passing away of phenomena, so they don't get to develop this dispassion, he called it, and to taste freedom. He said that they have to learn how to really stay with change in order to taste freedom it's like the quote I read this morning that practice must be a process of endless disappointment that we must keep seeing that the things of this world the changing circumstances of this world are not going to provide an ultimate refuge and in this land of plenty where we have so much It can be hard for us to conceive of another kind of happiness that's not dependent on circumstances. So we get many chances to work with our reactivity and develop peace. Sometimes it's little things like knee pain or a lunch we love or hate. A rainy day. Not getting on the airplane. Some of these things may be little, but actually these are the moments of our lives all these little things and each moment we have the chance to develop freedom and from these small little things we develop the strength for the bigger challenges of life the chronic illness the challenge of intimate relationships losing our job aging Through practice, we condition our minds to equanimity, to more and more moments of peace and acceptance. And we find that we're able to embody a deep sense of peace and spaciousness that infuses our life. And equanimity is also called the gateway to Nibbana. A mind strong in equanimity is primed to open to the deepest truth, to the unshakable liberation of mind and heart that the Buddha called the goal of this path. Equanimity is a dependable kind of happiness. It's a happiness where we can take refuge. Maybe that's enough for today. Let's sit for a minute or two. May our hearts and minds grow strong in this beautiful quality of equanimity, the highest kind of happiness, deep peace. And then may we share this gift with others in this world.